Most Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Jenna Spangler, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Awesome. Uh, Grateful for the chance, folks, to sit down uh, and have this conversation with Jenna today. She had asked uh, last week kind of what we would be talking about this week. And I thought, man, it'd be fun just to have kind of a off-the-cuff conversation about a few topics that, uh, as you and I went to lunch the other day, you came down to Southern Utah and we had a conversation around various topics, some of them part of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought the conversation was so good. And, and I thought it'd be fun to pick some kind of controversial topics and have a have a conversation from them. So before we get started, any thoughts from you? Anything that uh, kind of roaming around in your mind or things going on this week that uh, are worth mentioning? Oh, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything in particular, but I did enjoy our conversation. We probably should have just turned on a um, a, a yeah. recording device and did a little and editing just... and had ourselves, yeah, an hour, hour and a half podcast there. That's right. Um, so, but oh, I don't know. I'm always up for controversial conversation. I, I don't always know everything, but I'm willing to admit what I don't know. And I love to have this kind of conversation and ask good questions, even about the things I haven't thought about too much. So yeah, one of the things we touched on, we're, we're not going to talk about it today, but we talked mm-hmm. about uh, the, the issue of transgender and mm-hmm. uh, transition surgeries for children who um feel that they're transgender, right? And one of the things I mentioned was that there's an individual in this ex-Mormon space who that's sort of a topic that they've spent a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, how complicated certain issues are, that one's extremely complicated. And I, I often feel like it's it's one of these that there may not be a great win-win on either side of mm-hmm. whether we support or postpone. And, and you brought up some good points about that there aren't as many of those as I think some folks think. And a lot of this is really happening in, as an adulthood, but some point I'd love to have that person on, I won't mention his name, but mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. that person on and have this conversation on the almost awakened podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, it led sort of to the idea that I wanted to cover some controversial things. And the first one I thought that would be fun is uh, privacy versus security. And it reminds me, I'm trying to remember what the gentleman's name was, but there's the, gentleman who was kind of a whistleblower on the government and he ended up residing in Russia for a while. Uh, do you remember the name offhand? Oh, um, there's Snowden. Was he the yeah, one or was he? The one. The, okay. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And when Snowden released a bunch of the documents that he did, one of the documents and people, you can believe this or not, but I understand this to be true that the U S government through, for instance, like your smart TVs and other smart devices is actually spying on you. Mm-hmm. And, you think like I'm in America and we should have a a degree of privacy, but we also live in this modern age where somebody on the other side of the planet can push a button and send nuclear warheads flying towards us. Mm -hmm. And so there is this balance of how much privacy do we have a right to versus how much privacy are we 
willing or are we forced to give up in order to have a secure country? Mm -hmm. And if our privacy is deeply compromised and that information is always able to be used against you, are you setting yourself up for some future moment where the country can uh, take advantage of that in place its citizens in some uh, highly policed status, right? And so maybe, maybe your thoughts, kind of opening up the topic, your thoughts of privacy versus security yeah. and how you see that issue playing out in your own mind. Okay. Yeah. So this is one that honestly, Bill, I haven't done a ton of thinking about it. I, it's been kind of more of a surface level. So on this one, I may have more questions for you than I do that I will definitely respond to. <laughs> but, um, but just off the cuff, just an observation that I have in general about these issues is that people tend to, I think, look for the leaders in their tribe to lead the way in how they feel about things. This is what I notice in most things that are controversial and political, right? We, if, if my guy from my party comes out against something, now I'm suddenly against it. And I don't always know why, but then I start just listening to the pundits and taking their talking points. And now I'm suddenly on this side of things. So I'm actually glad we're having this conversation because I think it's important to always, in all of these things, to presence the pros and cons of both sides and admit that it's hard. So many of us just want to land on one side. We really just want to have the decisions be easy. And they're not. And this is why society is so complicated, because we have to balance the needs of the few and the many and watch for the tyranny of the majority and the tyranny of the minority. All of that exists, right? Yeah. And oh. outside threats, right? Like in other places in the world that would love to see Americans killed and destroyed. That's right. And we have to, we have to acknowledge that that is the case. So of course we need national security. Of course we need people to be able to listen in. Um, and we also have to acknowledge that our government is not always the good guys mm -hmm. and the other side is not always the bad guys. And sometimes that threat comes from within as well. And so that's what you're hearing with people that are not okay with people spying on us and, and our own government spying on us is because we don't always trust our own government and for good reason sometimes. Yeah. They're not always honest, right? They're not always telling the truth they're not always on our side. No. And, and there is this battle, right, between uh, a society perpetuating itself mm -hmm. and and having to protect that collective interest of, of not necessarily the people, but of the government, state and national. Mm -hmm. and, and so there is this idea that, first off, this is all myth, right? So, so a country, say the United States of America, yeah. we go like, oh, we've got the constitution and everything is fair. And generally speaking, and, and really there's no way the U S government would ever get to a point where it would operate through tyranny or something other than a form of democracy. Right. But all countries come to an end. No country has lasted forever. There have been thousands of, uh, collections of people with with some sort of government over them that have come and gone. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And there is an expiration date on the United States of America, whether we like it or not. That's right. And and people think that's crazy, but the reality is, let's say Russia hit the 10 largest cities. Mm -hmm. And we already know what the damage of 10 nuclear bombs would be anyway. You enter something called nuclear autumn or nuclear winter and Mm -hmm. temperature of the planet drops and crops don't grow. And now we're all back to a hunter-gatherer state where a significant portion of human beings just die. Right. But if they got away with hitting major point, major places Mm -hmm. in the country, it wouldn't take much for various locations in the United States to go back to trying to govern themselves in order to have some form of safety and security in that area. Mm -hmm. If you could imagine the uh, electoral grid coming down, for instance, yep, and that would send the the country, no matter what it would send, if it was for more than two weeks, it would send the country into absolute chaos. Absolutely. So we do have to be able to stop the things that threaten Uh, our democracy, and we have to be able to protect the citizens in some way from a government slowly or quickly moving towards tyranny. That's right. And as you're pointing out, it it really is a balancing act of where do you draw the line? A hundred percent, because we also have to recognize that we're humans with this survival instinct and that these conversations really do um start to uh, activate our deep fear and survival mm. instincts right and so we can also go too far in conspiracy theory in you know try in and and being making these conversations or these decisions out of fear which is also something we really have to watch as humans because i i don't think we can avoid it but we can recognize it we can recognize yeah. it and bring that to a conversation about it, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, there are a lot of people that hear a conversation like this and head off into the hills to live off the grid. Yeah. And, yeah, if, in the eventuality that something you're talking about happens, they're going to have the last laugh. <laughs> and I don't know. What are the chances of something like that actually happening? Hard hard for any of us to say. Yeah, and, and probably the chance of it happening eventually is probably good, and the chance of it not happening in our lifetime is also probably good. That's right. Um, what what did you think? Were you were you aware back then when Snowden was coming out with all of that stuff? Were you aware that there were extreme modes by which the government was keeping an eye on us when that information came out? That and did that bother you? Or now knowing it, does it does that bother you? Yeah. Um yeah, I I'm I'm trying to remember what I initially felt about this cuz I have been all over the map and I think what makes it confusing for me is I think all this was going down at a time when I was experiencing personally a I was experiencing personally a huge shift in my political viewpoint and worldview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there are a lot of topics that I started out on one side and went to the other. And what does that tell me? That tells me again, I'm doing what I'm saying. I'm following the pundits. I'm following what people say and the people I trust. Right. Yeah. And it, this is one of the problems we have is it's so hard to get information that we can assess that is actually reliable. Right. Everyone's got a motive. Even the press has a motive. They've got a motive to have the the breaking story that is going to bring a lot of traffic to their publication. And so this is where 
this idea of fake news comes out and this idea of whatever it and if we don't have some sort of method of reliable information we are really in a heap of trouble and i think that's kind of where we are with a yeah. lot of these right now but as as i think back uh you know some of the thoughts i had it it feels all over the map right mm. do i like the idea of somebody just spying in on me at any given time of course not of course i want some privacy and i remember also having these thoughts of if i have nothing to hide then what do i care what do i care if they you know see me doing my stupid things if i'm you know if i'm not up to anything nefarious then why do i care yeah but but it's but again the protection and not that it's real or not real. Like, I, th I think this yep. is all debatable, but mm -hmm. the protection that if they are watching and it's yep. only mundane at the moment, unless you are behaving like a terrorist, mm -hmm. they don't care that you're watching porn. They don't care mm -hmm. that you're mm -hmm. making love in your living room to your spouse. They don't, they don't care about that. You're debating whether you're going to vote for Biden or Trump. Yep. But that over the process of time as the, as the, as a, a country, becomes more unstable, then that information can at some future point be used differently. And it already, we already 100%. know that they can do things without us knowing they're doing things. Yep. So the idea of a slippery slope, at least the potential of that's there. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, this is why we have in any criminal investigation, this is why we have warrants. This is why we have, you know, we people can't just come searching for things at any given time. And our electronic devices have given people, we've given the government the ability to do that without cause, without a warrant, without anything. Yeah. And I, I think we're all fine and dandy until we get falsely accused of something and some piece of information is used against us. Or if our political enemies somehow that tyranny starts to seep in and now we're on the receiving end of we're, we're on the losing end of yeah. whatever information we have out there. It is absolutely fraught. The, the place I sort of land is, mm -hmm. is that if the government, uh, if there were some sort of assurance that the mundane just doesn't matter, and and there were clear-cut guidelines on what they're looking for and what could be used. And if everything on that side of the line was to uh, protect national interest from terrorism or um, to prevent whatever sort of the planning of major atrocities in this country, yep. then I, I can get there. Like I can... I think I'm okay with that because I, I really do. This whole thing with Russia and Ukraine really shows us that at any moment, the the things that we've spent 200 years building in this country and across other democracies in the world mm -hmm. could really be just taken away almost instantly. Yep. And and so I'm really, I really think in a modern age with the technology that we have and who knows what the next generation of artificial intelligence combined with advancements in weaponry, I mean, there's going to come a moment. It, let me say this. There's this conversation happening where they're trying to pause AI so that they can like yeah. have a three-year break where everybody can kind of figure out what they want to do with it. Yeah. But do we really think every country is going to pause AI? Right. No. And no. so if only the good guys pause AI and the bad guys are still working on it, 
What stops a moment in time where you can just unload killer robots that can identify the Americans from the Russians and suddenly robots walk out and just kill everyone on the battlefield because they move faster and, and absolutely. So, well, and even, and even the, even the good, the, the good intentions, if we are deploying AI to, um, you know, to take care of the environment, to come up with innovative solutions, Mm -hmm. right. They may decide that humanity is the biggest threat. (laughs) Yeah, that we're the virus. <laughs> we're the virus. Yeah. We're the ones that need to be eliminated. Like, there's so yeah. many issues with this, right? And you're right. Yeah. Like, I think sometimes we're either on the side of, um, and 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 I think, I think this is our survival technique as well. Like, mm-hmm. some of us are on this on the side of we just need to trust humanity and trust in the goodness that keeps me from being in fear twenty four seven about what some nefarious other country that doesn't want me to be around, you know, what may happen. Um, and it's also on the other side, the other extreme is to just circle the wagons and do what, everything that we need to just make sure that we are absolutely safe. And I, it's fascinating to me to watch both sides do this. And what concerns me, though, is that these two sides, rather than living in reality, they only pick out the parts that uh, will support their side. And I think that this happens with most controversies, actually, that the people who are on the extremes of the opinions, most of the time, have to ignore some part of reality. Mm. It is very hard to find people with the capability of taking all the all of the reality into consideration without trying to skew it. Mm-hmm. And not not in any nefarious way, but in in a way that um that is just trying it's it's subconscious just trying to help us get through life. Yeah. And it's one of my biggest frustrations about this stuff because you're only hearing this pundit say, pick their side and this pundits pick this side. And it's really hard to put it all together. And it's really hard for most of us to listen to both sides. (laughs) Yeah. And it's weird that we were ever asked to in the first place. In other words, it's Mm -hmm. strange to me that all the chances that people in power have had to create governments and constitutions essentially and and you know the, the laws and bylaws of any given nation yep. that someone hasn't come up with a process that brings the most wise emotionally mature people together to talk out ideas with a sort of balance to that because you and me would get in a conversation and this has happened su- numerous times where I'll say something and you'll go and <laughs> this is also true and I'll go like oh yeah that's my blind spot There's no, there seems to be enough of us in this world who can sit and listen to differentiating ideas, find the the positive and the negative in both sides and begin to have a real conversation about which side provides the most net good, or can we come to a common agreement where both sides have to compromise? And for whatever reason, every system in this world avoids doing it that way. Yep. At least all the ones I know of. Oh, I, I, I completely agree. Like I, I have this, des- this is just part of who I am. I really like listening to both sides. I really like that kind of a conversation. I really like um, 
trying to take in all the information. And so years ago, I just walked into the political arena thinking, well, this is what people want. We need to have more people who can do this and have the conversation and work together and work across the aisle. This is, and I, and I actually really believe that the vast majority of Americans want that. I, I actually think that that is, as I talk to people, it's what most of us want. <laughs> and yet most of us really on some gut level don't want that. What I've realized is that people just really want to feel safe in the way that they feel safe. And most people want, they respond to the certain voices that are typically more extreme, Mm. that are just only talking about one way to do it. And so I went, I, I, I got very cynical very quickly as I got involved in the political process. When I saw how delegates are, are picked, how, when I saw how all of the, this worked, when you get closer, you get more disheartened, not not less. And it's been the same in religious circles. Well, certainly we want what's the best and what's Christian for most people, you know, because I come from a Christian background. Of course we want that. But it, there is something about human nature that the majority don't choose that when push comes to shove. They don't want to have the the, the conversation. There's too much going on in their life and they just want their person to win. Yeah. There was a country, I can't, I don't remember what country it was, but it was in the news in the last week. And the technology has gotten to the point that uh, smart surveillance in this country, they had the ability to distinguish when somebody looks suspicious. Mm. And so it was on the Drudge Report, I think. And it was, um, like I said, four or five days ago where they were, this country was enacting um, to begin using its smart surveillance to essentially pick out criminals before they committed a crime. And, and there was a movie with Tom Cruise that was yeah, minority uh, report. That's what yeah. this is. Right. Yeah. And, and, and not that they would mm-hmm. take you and arrest you before the crime was committed, which was the basis of that movie, but yep. that essentially they would now keep their eye on you and then see you do the yep. crime. And they could get to you quicker and, and yeah. use it as evidence and all that. But again, same kind of thing makes me nervous. If we're going to start one of the things I body language, even if we tell a computer to figure it out, Body language isn't the best way to know whether somebody is doing something or not doing something. They said for us humans looking at somebody, for instance, in body language, we we get it right like 52% of the time. So almost 50-50. Yeah. And, and to set up a world where if somebody looks suspicious, suddenly pull, there's police cars sent to that area, you know? Yep. Um, it's yeah. It's going to put is- all of us on guard on the front end. And I think it's going to lead to more bad things happening and it's going to stop more crime. Absolutely. Did you read the book Talking to Strangers? By yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. He 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 talks about this a lot, right? And he he even talked to police officers who were trained in this to see what's suspicious, who's lying, who's not lying, and it's the same thing. They they get it right, like no better than guessing. It's no better than throwing a dart at this kind yeah. of stuff. And so I do get really nervous with this kind of stuff, especially when. The vast majority of humans and the vast majority of people in the United States, I believe, have not been trained to understand what their inherent biases are. And if you have an inherent bias that you are not aware of, um, and then you label someone suspicious, the, the people who are typically marginalized or that have bias against them 
are then just further victimized in our society. Yeah. In that Malcolm Gladwell book, they even did some research on judges. And if the judge was physically present to see the people in the courtroom, he was less accurate at (laughs) ruling the case than if he was not present with them and only saw, only read the things that were said versus hearing or seeing the people that were saying them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, And our brain tells us the opposite. If I get my hands here, if I get my eyes on it, I've got a better chance of getting it right. And the reality is, no, that's actually not true. Your biases will come in. If you see somebody dressed a certain way or somebody talks different than you, you're going to tend to pass judgments along, even though you're trying to be fair and unbiased, you're going to pass judgments along that you wouldn't have done if you just had the bare bone facts without all the extra. Absolutely. And we're, we're completely unaware of these things. We think we're a blank slate. We think that we are humans that just take in data and then we, we can, we can sort through that and it, it affects our worldview in good ways. And we are so unaware of all of these other factors and the inherent biases that are in there that are all part of our programming. I mean, it's, 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 it's not a, a terrible thing. It's the thing that keeps, it's that system that helps me know that I like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I don't have mm-hmm. to try it every time to know if I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when I have to make a decision, I have a lot of experience behind me that helps me get through my day. It's it's a survival technique. It's it's a, something that's evolved over the, the history of human consciousness. It's a good thing. And yet it's so fast. It's a fast system, so much faster than our rational brain that that we have absolutely no idea how that is guiding us through our lives. Yeah. So privacy and security. Yeah. It sounds like what we're saying is like probably every one of these topics complicated. It's the reason they're controversial, complicated and there's merit and uh, dysfunction and, and negatives on, on both sides, right? There's positives and merit negatives and dysfunction on both sides of these. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think I think what we, if we're ever going to have any success in coming to a, a reasoned conversation about these things, my sense is that we have to start with shared values. Mm. And what's crazy is we actually have so many more shared values mm-hmm. than we do different values in this country, I think. Mm-hmm. But we, we fixate on the solution first and then then get really hunkered down in our position. And then it becomes a fight for survival and power and likability and all the things that start to come in, in our political discourse, where instead, if we could focus back on values, what are our shared values? Can we have a reason discussion together on the same side against this issue that is a problem for all of us? You know, I, I don't think that there's anyone out there saying, yeah, we just want our enemies to be able to, you know, do whatever they they can do. We just we really shouldn't spy on them at all. No one is no one is saying that. Right. And no one is saying that they should have unfettered access. But when you put one agency with one goal and one value in in charge and there's no check and balance, this is where we start to have all kinds of problems. How do we come back to shared values so that there is a check? and a balance to what is going on. And and we need this in lots of places. I, I don't know if you, Bill, did you ever see 
um, it's one of my favorite clips, so I've watched it several times, but it was John Stewart talking about a controversial thing. John Stewart on Stephen Colbert talking about, this was early on in the pandemic, and he was talking about um, whether the virus was created in the lab. Mm. In, in, or not hand lab yeah yes i don't know if you've seen that clip mm. it's very it's very funny mm -hmm. but one of the things he says in it that pertains to this conversation is that he says you know we we love science science does amazing things and who has the stop button you know <laughs> on who this is no no one is sitting in the room going hey is this is this a good idea like we need we need ethics people to be in the room with all of these things we're talking about. We need to mm. be able to have ethics experts who have, who have given their time in life to understanding the intricacies of these things and better ways to think about it, to be in the room with all of these different agencies or scientists or anyone who is doing their pursuit. It is too easy to get tunnel visioned and not see the bigger picture. You, you hit on a great point, and I'll say this, and then we'll move into the next topic, but hmm. um, values. I mean, it's not just shared values. Anytime you come to a disagreement with somebody, if, you, if people would recognize almost always in those moments, it's a difference of values. That's right. And and that people have whatever their values are. We, we all come to uh, a moment with our own personality, with our own history, our own traumas, and the, hence the things that we value are going to be slightly or more different than uh any, any other given person on the planet that we're, that we're interacting with. And so yep. if rather than go, I'm right, you're wrong. If, if, as you pointed out, if we'll start by what are your, what do you value here? Mm -hmm. It's going to allow a lot more room to go like, Oh, I can see why you would want the world to look this way. And here's my value. And Oh, hopefully you can see why I would want the world to look that way. Absolutely. I, it makes the conversation, I think much more productive. Well, and your traumas that brought you to that value are going to be instructive for me because I have not experienced your trauma. So I didn't even know it was there. Like we are yeah. actually more informed when I listen to what is traumatizing you. Instead, what we want to do is, is just say your trauma doesn't matter. You, you right. need to deal with that. That's a you problem. Right. We, we really have these very guarded systems that I don't want to hear what your trauma is. And I don't want to, I don't want to value it and see the, the intelligence and the wisdom in it. Yeah. The next one I, I put on here is uh, tribalism versus individualism. And these were ones that, you know, you and I threw out some different mm -hmm. topics and I think we both kind of threw out two or three of these and yep. uh, tribalism versus individualism. Yeah. And John DeLynn and I had a conversation on his podcast. Um, it just aired a week or two ago, but it was recorded like a month and a half ago. And our debate in that conversation uh, was the three-part series. And it was part three where we talked about sort of this. It was yeah. whether helping people deconstruct religion and get out, whether that is beneficial or not to society as a whole. Yes. And we both acknowledge, like, we don't know, like maybe having everybody in this world move towards waking up, realize all religion is myth and step out and begin to just be much more individually, you know, more of an individual spirituality or nothing at all, if that's what they want, mm -hmm. versus being part of a religious system that maybe religion carries certain tools that are really for the society's benefit. 
and this kind of is in the same line. If, if like there is really unhealthy things that go on in tribalism, because now it's in a, it's an agreed system of values. And that means that some folks whose values or beliefs or uh, their person is different outside of what that collective system agrees to, they're going to really get bumped into quite hard. Yeah. And on the other end, if we let everyone kind of just, if we, if we, if we create a government system, a society that values the individual to the nth degree, then we might end up losing certain facets of helping each other out. We might lose certain facets of collaboration. We might lose certain facets of caring about the bigger collective issues Mm -hmm. and hence things could go south before we even knew they did. Yep. What are your thoughts on tribalism versus individualism? Yeah, well, I'll I'll add a big one to one of the things that we lose out on if we just get rid of the religions, right? And that is wisdom tradition that is handed down. We tend to always think that what we know now is so much better than what was in the past. But true development, it is, we transcend and include. Just because we know more than humans knew 10,000 years ago doesn't mean that they were all wrong. And wisdom can be lost. And those wisdom traditions have been passed down in a reliable way through several religions. Now, that doesn't mean that all religions are right or that they get it right or that whatever. That there are grains of truth, especially if you looked at at the parts that, that agree with one another you know, especially when the world was very separated from one another. There's, there's something we can really learn about the truth in the places that different people came up with in different places for, um, you know, ways for us to be well, right? So we have all these systems for this. Governments, as you said, you know, I don't know that they're the best way to, to, uh, hold that kind of wisdom. We have university systems now that hold some sort of the wisdom. Religion is a reliable way to hold on to some of the relig- that, that wisdom. But it's important for us to have repositories and spaces for all of this wisdom to be handed down, right? Because different places develop in different ways. And if you have a country that is not morally grounded in what is good for people, And you combine that with a a high technological or AI capability, you are asking for a world of hurt and of damage to be spread, right? So I, I am just a huge proponent that in this, as in most things, we've got to have a balance and we've got to be able to name it and recognize as you're talking about, what are the pros and cons? What are we giving up? Do we have mechanisms to provide the most good to the individuals in any collective? And we have been historically really bad at this because, and it is precisely because our tribalistic instinct kicks in, right? Our, when our tribalistic instinct kicks in, what it wants is it wants to group with the people that agree with me, it doesn't want to listen to you. It doesn't want to allow you to have a different experience than I do. I don't want to see value in that because it makes me feel safe to just be with the people that agree with me. So um, what what comes up for me is um, this framing by M. Scott Peck. 
if you remember who he was, psychologist. He wrote his biggest uh, work that people know is from the 80s. He wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. Mm. Um, but he has a framing for community that starts with pseudo community and ends with true community. And when you read those, you're, you're going to recognize most of our religious affiliations, most of our clubs, most of our groupings um, in the pseudo community. Um, and pseudo community is where all of those tribal instincts show up. So it, it people try to kind of keep the peace. I don't want to really rock the boat. I want to play nice. I don't want to disagree with you. Um, because things get re start to get really, really messy when I disagree with you and I say it out loud. We don't quite know how to deal with that. So we try to stamp it out. Um, but there's not a lot of trust in those systems, not because people are untrustworthy, but because they're untested. It doesn't go deep. We have to be able to actually kind of wrestle with these things to have a, co a really, truly cohesive unit that lasts. Right. Because even even systems where we all agree and we're all tribalistic, it doesn't hold because we can pretend in a pseudo community all day long that we're the same, but we're not. Mm -mm. And people will start to fracture and we just won't want to deal with it. True community is actually based on um, an ability to get through conflict. It's based on an, an wisely without it getting out of control. It's, it's based on us being able to tolerate difference within the group. It's actually a deeper kind of a community that goes further and longer and is more stable in the long run because it allows us, and, and I think this true community allows us more individual uh, wellness and individual um, individuality where we can express that within a group. But the reason it's so hard to get to true community is that the second stage that he says, and it's a four-stage model, goes pseudo community and then chaos. <laughs> and after chaos, there's emptying. And we have to go through chaos and emptying before we're ever going to get to true community. Mm. Because chaos, it when when people start to say, well, actually, I am going to say that I'm different than you. We If we don't have the skills as human beings to hold that, and to be and to notice our survival instinct and to calm down our defenses and to listen and to be emotionally regulated, it is absolute chaos. And you have to have leadership that can hold people through that to an emptying of your own uh, defense systems to be able to ever reach true community. That is such an uphill battle. I mean, we have been evolutionarily programmed for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to figure out how to be safe and secure or, or the illusion of safety and security. That's right. And that has shown up over and over and over again over that time period as us's and them's. And as you point out, I mean, true community allows people to be themselves. Mm -hmm. And it works with the differences. It doesn't work to work out uh, or to get rid of the differences and rather it deals with them. But now That's you're right. talking about a significant degree of discomfort that we're all going to have to sit with as people who, whose life experience, their race, their gender, their sexual expression, their nationality, ethnicity, 
their life experience is so different than ours that their values are very different than ours and they would like the world to look very different than we do. Mm-hmm. And that feels insecure. 100%. And, it, and as you point out though, if you can get to the place where you go, no, no, like these are actually gifts. It brings, these are all filling blind spots. And so this, this community that values all of that and we're, I don't think anywhere on the planet's there yet, right? Absolutely. I, I don't think we are there yet. I think there yeah. are very small pockets that are starting to work on this and starting to recognize it. And and I think that's where a lot of we're seeing religious energy going is into these small pockets of people. It's into little little pods and sangha and however you want to call that. Um, but it is really hard to get to in mega churches. It's really hard to get to in big political parties. It's really hard to get to um, when when we are on the scale that we are. And now we're on a world scale. And, and I actually frankly think that developmentally, technology brought us to a place that we are not evolutionarily um, in an evolutionary way, mm. we're not prepared to deal with it. The technology's moved much faster than our ability to catch up with it. And to deal with it emotionally yeah. as 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 a as a human with all of who we are. Evidenced by the fact that we all check out by watching two hours of TikTok, right? That's right, right? Right. <laughs> we're all Absolutely. trying to escape this having to deal with this chaotic world, which is in the last few years revealed itself to be more chaotic than we thought it was. hundred percent. Frankly. I think we, it is a freaking miracle that we're doing as well as we are. Mm-hmm. And, and that if we sit back and look at some of the measures that we can quantify as far as poverty and violence and all of the, all of the things that we look at worldwide, humanity is, is going, the trajectory is good. Like by, with all of those factors, mm-hmm. the trajectory overall is good. That doesn't mean we don't regress in some ways. I mean, I just read an article about how infant mortality has gone up 11.5% in Texas since their restrictive abortion policies, right? Like we regress in some ways. There are places we regress in little ways. And I don't know. I'm kind of with Martin Luther King Jr. It gives me hope, right? That the that the arc of history is long that bends toward justice. That that's kind of the thing that helps keep, keep get me through. And the fact that the vast majority of people, if I sit and talk to an individual for long enough, my enemy becomes my friend. It's just that I I'm not really listening deeply enough to understand another human being. Yeah. Even in very inclusive groups or communities, though, mm-hmm. they're even the folks who propose that they really want everyone as they are. They're still, yeah. there still are invisible lines, invisible lines that uh, we deem. You know, you can hang out with people you generally like, and there'll be twenty folks that you consider friends, and you're still going to pick to choose to spend more time with some of them and then others of them, right? Absolutely. And if somebody comes to your group with a similar journey as you, but they are, um, they are compared to how you want the world to look, they are stranger than, than you would want your world to be. Mm -hmm. You'll find a way to, 
push them out of the group. People do this even in the most inclusive groups. So I 100%. think we have a long way to go long, to value long, long everyone's to input. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, tribes, we've, people have, have been experimenting with this. The postmodernists hate the hierarchies, like, right. We're trying to like all just lead by community agreement, which, you know, that, I don't know. That's fraught. That's a, that's problematic. Yeah. Hierarchies kind of actually help with some things. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, I don't know. It, it reminds me of the good place. I don't know if you, you watched mm -hmm. that, yeah. but you know, in when they actually got to the good place, they were all ruling by committee and they're like, well, we'll make a decision in the next few centuries, the next millennia. I can't remember how long it was. Right. There's truth in that. Yeah. There's truth in that. And, and, We've, I don't know, the only hope for some of this is to have not authoritarian uh, people in authority, but people who are truly leaders, people who um, have done enough inner work, mm -hmm. who have the, the ability to have um, some, some, um, the intelligence, the, the openness, um, but also the decisiveness, like you have to have really developed people who are leading. And, and one of the things that I think holds us back so much is that we haven't figured out how to put those people in charge yet. Kind of to what you were saying earlier, mm -hmm. Bill, we haven't figured out how to put the right people in charge yet. Yeah. The system promotes the most charismatic. It promotes the most wealthy, right? You, money can buy you an election and not having any money will sure as hell lose you an election and probably not even get you to the election. That's right. Right. That's um, right. I mean, uh, Freakonomics talked about this. I don't know if you ever read that book yeah, back in the book. day, right? Mm -hmm. And it did. It, it It connects through data. It connects who wins elections. And it is um, highly, highly skewed to the rich and the charismatic. Yeah. And so getting to a point where, and you almost, again, we'll get into nationalism next. But nationalism, in a sense, is the problem. It tells you that you're already great. You don't need to think about doing things differently. Don't think outside the box. That's but right. we really, if we're going to build a world society, we're going to have to find ways to allow differences in regions. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to find a way to accept differences also as having value. We're going to have to find a way to put the wisest folks in charge so that there's less animosity and uh, maliciousness and nefariousness, the word you used earlier. Um, we probably have hundreds and, and probably most likely thousands of years before we could even imagine getting there. I, I totally agree. I'm looking at one of the comments. So it's about having the right people in power and it's not the system itself. I think the right people in power put the right systems in place. Yeah. That's what I would say to that. Yeah. Right. Yes, it is both. It is the system. <laughs> It's the system which is perpetuated by the leaders because the the way this works historically, right, is that we've got a little system and the people for whom the system was built, for whom it works, rise to the top. They rise to the power, uh, into power of the group. It's the people in the core that that really exemplify what works for that system. They're the ones that rise. And then, unfortunately, that makes people very unaware. Because the system works for you, you are very unaware 
of the people for whom it doesn't work. And the natural thing is to look at the people on the edges and to say, well, you're just not doing it right because it obviously, the system obviously works. Look, look at me. It's working beautifully for me. And it is, a, it is one of the hardest things that we ever do. And this is why tribalism, um, you know, just gets so easily perpetuated because it's, it's not because we have bad people in, in power. It's because we have people who don't necessarily have not been trained to listen to the degree that they need to, to take care of the people who are on the edges. And so those people just get victimized over and over and over again. And when they complain, we don't listen and we tell them just do it better. Just do the system working. It's, it's, you know, just be better at it. And it, they, until they get so, so hurt and that they become angry and violent and, and then we blame them for being angry and violent. Now, now see, that's their character flaws. It's, it's such a vicious cycle with systems. Yeah. In fact, I want to talk about systemic issues right after nationalism. So okay. All right. um, let's, let's hit on nationalism for a moment. And what I would say here is that um, thinking you're the best country on earth or encouraging your people to be loyal to your government and your culture and your society mm-hmm. ends up with a lot of blind spots to the point where most uh, conservative Americans have this kind of intuitive idea that America is the best place on earth. Yep. And maybe it is, but the data seems to say otherwise, right? When we look at, and and there are reasons for it. I think uh, America might have more diversity than some of the places that mm-hmm. seem to indicate where people are happier. So yes. America might have challenges that those places don't have. And I want to, I want to be, I want to acknowledge those up front. But 100%. when America says it's the best place on earth, it seems to be ignoring the study that's done every year that weighs uh, healthcare, well-being, crime. I mean, it goes across like 24 different categories. And what ends up happening is these, uh, European countries like Finland, uh, Scandinavia, I think, uh, 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 Netherlands, uh, Denmark, uh, those places. New Zealand. New Zealand tend to, and they're a, we've talked about this maybe on the podcast before, but they're a common ancestry of people. And the places where those people created the the country and the rules those folks seem to measure quite high on these scales. Yes. Uh, Finland's won six years in a row, I think. Mm -hmm. And when you think you're the best place on earth, meanwhile, you have all of these inner city problems, poverty, crime, drugs, all the issues that America does. When you, when you think you're the best place on earth, you're not really prone to sit and listen to what others might have to offer for improvement. And so With that said, what are your thoughts on promoting nationalism or giving a message contrary to the promotion of nationalism? Yeah. Um, So I just wanted to just mention New Zealand does quite well, especially they, they have absolutely dealt with colonizers and different coming from different ethnic places. Right. Um, So there are, there are systems that are dealing with that, but I agree with you. Most of, most of Europe, um, isn't dealing with that. And 
as more uh, immigration starts to happen into those countries, it's they they struggle also with how to to go about integrating people. Mm-hmm. Integrating people is difficult the world over. <laughs> um, but um, sorry, I lost the question. The question is that with nationalism, nationalism, do we do we um, do we encourage it? So I feel like there are some real problems, and I'm probably I'm just full disclosure. I'm probably on the side of nationalism being a net bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and probably because I'm just, I've been really studying and focusing on the problems with it. You know, in America, it is typically not just nationalism. I think we have to name that in America right now, in this moment, it is white Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's actually data to, to support that. The more, um, the more, Christian nationalist a person a white person is, the more the white person feels like white people are victimized. Mm-hmm. The more that black people are Christian and nationalist, it doesn't affect them in the same way. Their line is pretty flat as they become more Christian nationalist. So there's actually a problem with white Christian nationalism that that I see in this country right now. And it is because of what you said, I think. It's when you are told, and I was told this, I don't know, there, there are different markers of what, what researchers and sociologists are trying to quantify this. Of course, sociologists try to quantify things. It's really hard to quantify social things. So I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. But, um, you know, they'll look at things like, do you um, believe that uh, that the constitution was divinely inspired. Mm-hmm. Do you believe um, that, you know, that, that the constitution and was, was divinely inspired? Um, should the federal government um, advocate Christian values over other things, right? Should there be a separation in church and state? Right. So like, those are the things that they ask people to kind of scale that. And the more Christian nationalists you get, it's fascinating that white Christian nationalists start to become really, really super defensive and think that they're being victimized. Meanwhile, what's really happening is the country's trying to move towards more balance and equality, where people who are not white Christian nationalists also have their needs wants uh, having as much value as the white Christian nationalists, right? And that feels like a loss of something and it is it's a loss of privilege and a loss of privilege when you're the most privileged often feels like you're being picked on mm-hmm. absolutely a hundred percent this is this is what is really 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 difficult um about the situation that we have like i don't i don't know this is america is such a unique place it is such a unique place in this because there really is um, I mean, I think history has shown, yes, we're, we're not great in the healthcare. We're not great in the education. We're terrible in the violence. We're te- like, there are a lot of places where, where we're not doing well compared to other, um, comparable countries that have been around as long as we have and have had democracies. Like we have a lot of problems and we also have an incredible amount of innovation where we don't own it all. There's incredibly innovative people all over this planet, 
But there are really special things about America to the point that people still want to come here, right? I mean, I, I remember I took a took an Uber ride with um, someone who had a great conversation with him, and he was he was an immigrant, and he was just so pro America in a way that challenged the way I like to get cynical about all of our problems, right? But really listening to him, it it renewed this sense of there's a lot of things we get right. And we, and I think, unfortunately, conservatives, I think this is a thing too. I think conservatives focus very much on the individual, speaking of individual and tribalism. They think about individual sin, individual responsibility, and the liberals are looking at the systems. So I find it really interesting that Christians who feel like something would be like really morally horrific on an individual level. Like if I kidnap you, Bill, and torture you, most people are going to say, and including the the religious right, they are going to say that is a terrible moral sin. Mm. And yet if it's for national security, we're, we're all for it. Mm. Like if we, it, the, the, the conservative mind has a really hard time taking a look at the systemic issues. Mm. They, they really focus on the individual. And I think that the left can go too far the other direction. We only focus on the systemic issues and we don't look at, at issues of personal responsibility. Nearly enough. There's a, there's a balance to be had in there, right? But I forget these things until I start talking to somebody who came to America and it made their life exponentially better. <laughs> Even though they're an immigrant and they're not in the privileged class. They are so happy to be here. So all of us have to watch it. And we've got to listen to people. We've got to listen to other people's experience and not just run with our own. Yeah. At some point, again, um, the sun that warms our planet has a lot of life left. That's what the scientists say, right? But at some point, <laughs> yep. it, it's going to burn out. Yep. And at some point, this earth is going to be under threat of whatever they say every 12,000 years, uh, a group of asteroids come mm -hmm. so close that there are asteroids hitting the planet. And we already know that anytime that's happened in the earth's history, that that's caused major issues. So yes. there are really big things coming mm -hmm. and they may be thousands of years away, mm -hmm. but it seems as though if we want to live in peace and if the human species wants to perpetuate beyond those threats, it's going to have to work together and come up with the best ways of doing things. Yes. And it seems like the only way to really get there is to start valuing um, everything that all humanity brings to the table rather than picking and choosing who we're going to favor or what we're going to favor. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. It, I, I mean, you know, a few couple of weeks ago we did the kind of that integral framing, right? Mm -hmm. Ken Wilber's work. Again, I said it then and I'll say it now. I don't think it's the thing that is going to save us, but it is one of the best things I've seen as far as framing ways of what we need to think about, what we need to be aware of, and how we get to where we need to be. And part of me is just holding out hope that we can get enough people who are integral thinkers, who have some way of innovating and 
and getting that kind of knowledge into the hands of people who are in charge. That I think that's the biggest hurdle that we have is how do we get the information? Because there's a lot of wisdom out there. There's so much wisdom. There's wisdom in the margins. I actually think that sometimes the margins have have more wisdom because difficulty brings up all the problems in the system. If we'd start listening to people, we could really fix some stuff. I just don't know how we get that to the right people and get the right people in power to actually do something about it. Oh, you're on mute. The, the systems that are currently built don't do that. And in order mm -hmm. to change them, you almost have to tear them down. And then inevitably what often replaces a torn down government is powerful people then creating new laws that favor them because they were able to come to power because of their viciousness and their unhealthiness and their egos. Yep. And so the chances that the wisest and most emotionally mature among us ever yep. get to be the ones who decide how the new system will be designed. Yep. It's also why I'm partially excited for AI mm. is that artificial intelligence can make decisions and be programmed to skip at least many, if not all of the biases, right? It's true. I mean, it, it, it's, we all tend to kind of gravitate to the same kind of leaders that we really look up to, right? It's the Gandhis, it's the Nelson Mandela's, it's the Mother Teresa's. It's like, we, there's the list, there's the short list that everybody goes to, right? Of people from history. Um, if we could figure out how to, um, how to identify those people and to actually start listening to them, they've existed throughout history. And there are millions of them out there who have never made a name for themselves and never written a book. So you don't know who they are. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I think without them, we'd already be gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're at a moment in time where you could tell chat, uh, chat GPT, you could say, take the mindset of Gandhi, Brene Brown, you know, name the, 25 most uh, grounded people you could, whatever you can come up with, you know, mm -hmm. and say, pretend these folks were deciding on a government and write it. And they could. But again, what it means is that the current government or the current people in power would have to step aside mm -hmm. and let that sort of new system happen. And then again, I just think we're so far away. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Yeah. Um, let's agree. jump. Oh, go ahead. Anything else on nationalism? Well, I was just going to say that there's another great comment. I would be worried about having people in power that can force change. I mean, that should scare the crap out of all of us. I totally agree. Yeah. And yet <laughs> and anytime this, real change happens, it's from people who force change. Absolutely. And this is the problem. This is the problem that we have. And this is why it hasn't been figured out. I mean, th this, we are just, humanity is just going to have to wrestle. Yeah. Uh, watching the TV show Vikings, this other comment here by somebody watching the TV show Vikings, the King Alfred and uh, Ragnar Lodbrook, the the two kind of leaders who play the biggest roles in the in the TV series, they both don't believe in God. I think it, it towards the end of both their reigns, and yet they both saw it was super important that everyone underneath that they that they perpetuate a belief in God, even though they didn't. And it just the the Toby here quote: "There is no God, but don't tell that to my servant, lest he murder me at night." Voltaire. I love Voltaire. 
there there is this idea that we that the governments often get by by allowing us to sort of fool ourselves because we don't really want to have the conversations that draw attention to the fact that this isn't working nor is it the best way to do it that's right yeah. that's right and most of us just want to um ignore i i'm a big proponent of people being able to take in all the data and all of reality without and notice the ways that we try to push some of it away. Yeah. And and this is to me what the dangerous part is about nationalism. The dangerous part to me is that when we start to assume that ours is God given, especially, I mean, the Trump card, God given, <laughs> right? There's, there's no arguing with that. Um, when we start doing that, it just is such a slippery slope to tyranny. And you'll hear a, a, a nationalist say that the other side is a slippery slope to tyranny. They're not wrong. Both sides, yeah. anyone with that strong conviction that they know the way is the slippery slope to tyranny. Mm. Let's uh, maybe with about a half an hour or so left, let's, let's talk for a moment about systemic issues and I'll pick racism. It's easy go to, I think uh, I've got a member of my family smart person, well-educated, great career, has to work with lots of people of different backgrounds, works in kind of a professional corporate business world. And this person feels like it is the fault of people of color that they don't get themselves out of the rut. And I have the whole opposite view. And it's, it's interesting. Whenever we get together and this is the conversation, it's this interesting debate. Because it seems so common sense to me, and, and here's what I mean. In the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, right, slavery. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Lincoln comes along and he has his own agenda and we, we write stories about him, but those stories aren't exactly true either. <laughs> and, but slavery ends. Mm -hmm. but, but, with the, but with slavery ending, we still had segregation. Mm -hmm. And segregation meant that people of color had the shittiest restaurants. They had the, uh, they, they had to sit in the back of the bus. They had to live in the poorest neighborhoods. They had to, they had to have the things that the white Christian nationalists, by the way, <laughs> didn't mind them having yep. at a bare minimum. Right. And yeah. It, not, and not only segregation, we had Jim Crow, we had the 13th amendment. Like we have all kinds of ways of just imposing legal slavery on people. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we are in 2023 and it's easy for somebody to go like, well, they would just do X, Y, Z. They could get themselves out of it. And, yeah. and in my head, I'm going, wait a minute from, from the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1950s. Mm -hmm. Why do we think that by now, they should have gotten themselves completely out of the poorer neighborhoods, that they got themselves the equal hospital care, that they got themselves the equal jobs. And, and, and the white conservative folks in this country tend to play this game where they go like, well, I just want it to be fair. Like, let's just pick the student with the best GPA and let's just give them the college scholarship. And yep. that's so flawed because it's so stacked against the minorities and, and, and the easy thing for me to explain this is to go, look, science says that a person of color's intellect and brain 
isn't any different than the white person's intellect and brain, for instance. Yep. And hence the reason they're stuck in these perpetual problems collectively is that they've there's not been enough time or assistance to get them out of the hole that the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1950s placed them in. Yep. And hence you have to sort of, and I mean this in a positive way, you have to bend over backwards to give these people added privilege, meaning that if the person of color has a 3.6 and the white kid has a 3.8, you give the scholarship to the 3.6 because we have to, the only way we can quickly get to a place of equality is to preference the people who are currently not benefiting from that system. Yep. Any thoughts from you on systemic racism, I guess is one, but mm -hmm. systemic issues in general, it just seems like we, with a broad brush, we go, nope, everybody's responsible for their own problems. Get, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And Perfect. it doesn't really take into account how things have worked over hundreds of years. 100%. I mean, if you look at if, if America has a personality, <laughs> right, the, the dominant personality has been that what you just described, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, individual effort creates all the benefits that you have. I mean, that was the system I, I was raised in a very politically conservative home. I fully believed all of that. I've and, and I don't know that I ever felt like, um, you know, people of color are inherently, you know, inferior in some biological intelligence kind of way. But I had this idea being raised in a conservative Christian home that there was some sort of moral deficit going on. And, you know, it's not any individual's fault, but if we just taught them the right morals or like we, I had all these ideas. I mean, it's, it's, it, I'm mortified by it now. Right. But that I got there honestly, I was a good person. I was I was a compassionate person. I just was not educated, and and I wasn't really open to being educated because the people that were educating me, I thought automatically had it all figured out. And this is why it's so important for us to broaden our historical education. And our whole education system, and yet we see the conservative right going after critical race theory, going after things that, that frankly, I, I have never had a conversation with somebody against critical race theory that could actually even tell me what it was. Because that's another one of those boogeymen that the pundits talk about, and now I hate it, even though I have no idea what it is, right? One, one of the, I'll just give a one little example of how important this is. And, and how this stuck out to me. Last summer, I went to Washington, D.C., and I went to the um, African, the National African American History Museum that is just a few years old. Um, highly recommend it. And uh, there's a place, and it's the, on the lowest floor of the, of the museum. You go down, and it, it starts out, and it starts with these two timelines of, um, of African history, and American history, European history, and then you see them kind of collide in America, you know, through slavery and through other things. And I'm just telling you, it is the thorough history lesson I never received as an American person 
in my school that I thought I got a decent education at. But I am telling you, and I'll give you one example of this that really stuck out to me. Um, they have a cotton gin there. And they, they have it on display so you can see what a cotton gin looks like. And I remember what I learned for my American, I took AP American history, AP US history. I got a five on my exam. I was really, really good at it, right? And I remember, I what did I learn about the cotton gin? I learned that Eli Whitney, this amazing inventor, invented the cotton gin and it started the industrial revolution. And isn't that amazing, right? Well, the little plaque on the cotton gin in that museum also presences that it made this the the ability to take the I don't even know what they're called but the little things out of the cotton that you have to get out of the cotton right I don't know if it's bowls I don't know what it is I don't know what I'm talking about but that process you know was made 4700 times more efficient by the cotton gin so if you're a white person writing history, that's amazing. If you are a black person writing, writing history, now you recognize that there is um, a logjam. Now you have um, the now you have the process of, of cotton, of, of harvesting cotton. It puts pressure on now we need so many more slaves to work so much harder in order to keep up with this cotton gin. Used to have um, that bottleneck where it would take someone a while on that step of the process. Just the two brushes and, and yeah. straining out the cotton to get yeah. Yes, it took a long, long time. Now we don't have that log jam. Now what did it do? It made the people who were living in slavery. It made their lives so much worse. Why did I never hear that? Yeah, it's both. We have to recognize the human element in the history we tell. And when I started recognizing this and started listening to Black historians, it is not an alternative history. It is a fuller history. We have to see that life has been different for different people all along the way, and we should not be scared of that. We need to have more of it. More education helps us. So that's yeah. my soapbox. If you if you take a hundred people, and we can use just white and, and black people as the, the two examples, but if we if we take a hundred people, um wherever they're at, put put people in Berkeley, California versus Birmingham, Alabama, and the the opportunity you have around you will dictate generally how well your kids do, how well your kids' kids do, how well your kids' kids' kids do. And vice versa. And so we have to stop thinking in terms of like, oh, that group of people are not as successful. They must not be trying as hard. Well, they're human in the same way I'm human. Yep. Whatever opportunities their great, great, great grandfather had is going to have heavy influence generally on the opportunities that that they have in this present moment. And when you sense that it really takes a concerted effort on the part of all of us collectively to move beyond that yep. or that it takes an unequal positive effort on the minority's part to get themselves out of it. And it's easy to go like, well, they, that's what they should do. 
Well, if, if I didn't have those obstacles, if I did have those obstacles, would I be able to overcome it? And assuredly, whether I could individually or not, collectively, people like me wouldn't because I'm human just like they are. And so we've got to make space that we, uh, in a way, err too much on that side in order to create the equality we want three generations from now, five generations from now, 10 generations from now. And it's not just racism, right? Um, Homophobia, the homophobia, that's a systemic problem in terms of um, how we perceive folks, how the government is set up to benefit same-sex couples versus married couples, all the stuff, the shenanigans that go on there. Uh, there's gender equality. There's a systemic gender issue. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's not that long ago and to some degree still that women are, are simply objects, when you look at, for instance, uh, Bible language of how a woman, what, what her value is to that community, we have to err on the other side if we're going to fix these issues and it's still going to take generations to do it. A hundred percent. I mean, you don't, you don't have to look any further than Freakonomics. Again, one of the other things that really challenged my little conservative brain at the time (laughs) was that if you Um, looked at kids who had hundreds of books in their home and never read one. And then you looked at kids who had zero books at home, but were voracious readers and, you know, read hundreds of books from the library, which kids overall do better in our system. It's not the, it's not the ones who read a lot. It's the ones from the wealthier homes that are wealthy enough to own the books. Yeah. That that tells you all you need to know. That was right. so confusing, right? That books takes can away sit on that. the shelf. Just the ability to have books. That's right. Even if they're not read was the difference maker. Yeah. Correct. And yeah. it was having the right name on the resume. They were also the one that talked about that study where people would send out identical um identical resumes, one with white sounding names and one with black sounding names. And the ones, the resumes that were identical, the black sounding names did not get the callbacks. Yeah. We we just we have to start to admit that we've got issues with this. We and we've got to start noticing that there are problems that just being educated that is that is a powerful wonderful thing and it's not enough. There was a um another episode by Malcolm Gladwell talking about desegregation. And we all tend to think, well, that was such an amazing thing. But I love Malcolm Gladwell because he always shows the other side of things, right? Yeah. He always pulls you in and then tricks you and shows <laughs> totally, you right? the world on its head. Yeah. Absolutely. But he showed how doing away, because guess who taught at the black schools? Black teachers. And guess what? The black teachers loved their black students. And when you forced them into schools, when you forced them together, which teachers did got let go? It was the black teachers, right? So a whole bunch of um, of unemployed black teachers, which is also not helping the community, right? Mm-hmm. And then these black students were forced into um, into classrooms where their white teacher didn't think as much of them, and they their their um, success in school started to go down. Yeah. And even to this day. Um, if there's a white teacher 
who is going to choose which students are eligible for the gifted programs and the gifted track, um, the white students get chosen. If it's a black teacher, it's equal. Mm. But if it's a white teacher, the white kids get the, the advantage. We have issues that are so ingrained in us, we don't see it and we're not even recognizing it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. There was an interesting conversation going on here. I was going to say, oh, someone made the comment, you're saying that you don't learn val valuable skills during trials. I just want to address that one because this is one we talk a lot about. There is this mantra, right? That what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. No, sometimes it takes a leg. Sometimes it costs us an arm. Sometimes it makes us wheelchair bound or puts us comatose in a hospital or yeah. A hundred percent. And it, and it, it lays in deep trauma that we cannot see. Right. And when we can't see it, we make all kinds of assumptions about ourselves and others. Mm. So there's a, there's actually, if you scale it from like one to 10, there's a comfort zone one to three-ish, I don't know where to break it off. But in the low numbers, you're not learning much because life is easy. In the middle, you're challenged. It is making you stronger. You are learning new things. We do need for our well-being. There are studies on this. Too much comfort does not lend itself to well-being. We need a little bit of challenge. We need that growth. There is something in humanity that, that really desires that. And it's good. You get in those upper levels and it is trauma. And we have done generational trauma to certain people in this country. And it is not just along racial, racial lines, but that's just one that's really easy to point out and see. We, we won't talk about it here, but you're reminding me of another controversial topic, which is mm -hmm. liberal parenting, you know, valuing mm -hmm. like no spanking. We're going to talk to the child. If they don't want to <sighs> do something, they don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I see the immediate value in respecting the, this child as a person and not trying to cause any harm. And I'm deeply worried that if we don't push somewhere close to the edge of what might be deemed unhealthy, we might have a generation of kids who don't know how to handle any challenges at all. I know, right? So, yeah. And I love that both sides we'll point the finger at the other side right now and call them all snowflakes because of this. And yeah. both sides have their snowflakes, right? I don't know. It's that's another country. I would love to have that conversation. Yeah. Like I could go on for days about that parenting one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know what the right answer is. Cause I, I definitely see the respecting mm -hmm. to a greater degree consent, respecting to a greater degree, not causing any intentional harm or trauma. Yep. And I'm worried that, without any adversity, a whole generation of people might have some weaknesses that actually work to the detriment of our society, right? A hundred percent. That yeah. for every person for whom their trials created their superpowers, which I do believe is a thing. Like when we, when we have something really, really hard, it often, the human person is amazing I hate to keep going back to Malcolm Gladwell. He's a great person to go back to, but his book, David and Goliath, have you read that one? Mm. The whole, the whole point of this book is showing the ways that things we think would be a deficit were actually creators of, of people's superpowers. And one example would be dyslexia is overrepresented in 
CEOs of corporations and, Mm. and, you know, because someone with dyslexia has had to find ways to compensate and they've gotten really good at other things that make them Mm. successful. But Malcolm is also very careful to say that the vast majority of people with dyslexia have a disadvantage and it stays a disadvantage. So it's not just that, oh, this is just an inherent blessing, right? Our brains want to think in all or nothing ways. Challenges can create superpowers, 100%. But I think the key for parenting that I am starting to come to, Bill, is that the key is not deciding how to punish, not to punish, what to do. It's it's with whatever you do, it's to recognize that a child is a human with dignity, that they are not a problem to be solved. They are a problem for us because we want our lives to be more comfortable. And our parents got after us when we showed discomfort with something. When we had a tantrum, what did our parents do? Right? Like, what did I do to my kids? Because it was the popular parenting at the time. Send them to time out. When you come back to normal, you can come back to be with the family. I'm going to train you into completely disregarding your... Up your discomfort down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Your frustration, your whatever. Can we, one of the biggest problems we have with all of this is that we have been, we have grown up in a society that has been trained to completely um, vilify discomfort and emotion. Mm. We were raised that way and we want it for our kids. And so we think we want to train them into something rather than giving kids their actual dignity And I think there are ways to do this. And it's not a world without discipline. It's not a world without that. But it is a world that first and foremost can help a kid recognize what their human body is doing and why. And give them the dignity of that experience. Mm, I love it. I love it. With a a few minutes we've got left, one of the ones you picked was Mm self-reliance. And... um, let me know what you're thinking there. What do you, when yeah. you say self-reliance in the good or bad of that issue, what do you, yep. what are you, what are you speaking to? Right. Yeah. So self-reliance is very definitely good and bad. <laughs> right. Like, um, I think again, for people, and this is my, this is my coaching training coming through. Right. And I deal with human beings. Um, but self-reliance when, when, I mean, life is just hard. I'm with the Buddhists. I'm I, I'm with I'm with Buddha, who said this is just a natural part of of life, right? Suffering is going to be part of our life, and we do need to have skills in order to get through that. And in some ways, this comes back to also a community versus individual issue, which is what what we are finding about good healing and getting through difficulty in life is that we we need two sets of skills. We need self-reliance. We need to be able to self-soothe. We need to be able to, um, you know, be empowered to make choices, to get through our, 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 our um, difficulties. We need to feel empowered to do hard things and meet challenges. But we also have a deep need as human beings for belonging, for connection. Things get a whole lot easier for us when we have someone else to walk through something with us. 
right? So we need to be able to co-regulate with another person and with a community, and we need to be able to self-regulate on an emotional level. We need the ability to face our challenges alone, and we need the ability to work with other people. If we're too much one way or the other, we cause ourselves bigger problems, right? If we are always relying on other people, that is going to weaken us personally. If we are always focused on ourselves, we are going to lose the gifts of community and working with others. And one of the things we now know, there are more and more and more neurobiological trauma studies coming out. We are understanding the physiology of this in our nervous system. Self, too much self-reliance going too far that direction, which America has done, with which Christianity has done, which the faith I, we grew up in. Holy crap. Mormonism is so heavy on self-reliance. I believe that's a trauma response. Because trauma tells us other people are not safe and you need to do it all yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that that's the new aha that I've come to is that self-reliance is a good thing. And when it is a hyper-focus, it is a sign of trauma. It is a sign that we do not feel safe in community. Yeah. When I, when I think of like uh, homelessness or mental illness, which often homelessness is deeply connected to. Absolutely. There, in my head, I go, we have got to figure out a way to provide a roof over the head and, and food and a warm place to, you know, to sleep for anyone, anyone in this country. And I know that some of that's an uphill battle. I mean, if somebody has really severe mental illness, even if you give them those things, they tend to sometimes walk away from them and end up back in the same problem. Yep. And I'm also aware that if we created a bunch of uh, overhead assistance to those folks, that there would also be folks who could have taken care of themselves who end up then benefiting from that system and as you're pointing out, like there might be this razor thin edge of supporting those who need it while also not allowing everyone to take advantage of it. For instance, mm -hmm. we saw when COVID happened and everybody started getting some checks. And I don't, I don't think they were that big from my point of view. It was 1100 bucks a month or something like that, you know, but you saw a significant part of the workforce just drop off. Because people said, well, if they're going to pay me to stay home, I'll stay home. And um, there's debate about what age group it actually was that was taking advantage of that. There's some mm -hmm. data that actually shows it was the 50 to 60-year-olds who were exiting the workforce 10 years early. Yep. Uh, because they saw kind of how fragile life is and wanted to enjoy some of their time. But at least to some degree, I, I, I did encounter younger people who felt supported enough by the government assistance that they didn't go work. Mm -hmm. And man, I, I feel like that's such a thin line of having a dependent society on government and also supporting the the marginalized among us who simply are not ever going to be able to take care of themselves. Absolutely. And, and the problem is that systems are really bad at doing all of this. And, and it's really labor intensive to assess really the needs that people need. And you throw on that 
that it's usually people who are doing fine that are trying to tell people who aren't doing fine how they need to do it rather than listening to them and what the problem yeah. is, right? We're I I love service, but we do it from a place when you do it from a place of top down, we're not really serving people. Mm. It we need to be doing it from a space of solidarity. Mm. Like the people who are coming up with solutions cannot be the people who aren't experiencing the problem. Right? We we need to get in there and understand people and understand and listen to them, understand what their issues are, not what we're assuming their issues are. Because we haven't lived that life. We don't know what the barriers are. We may be may we may be helping and we're putting up more barriers for people if we're not truly listening to people. This is not easy and this is so labor intense. We have not figured out how to do this. Yeah. And, and hence, I'm back to what you said at the very beginning, which is there, there may not be great answers in the moment for many of these things, that it requires right. a lot of balance in our view. And as I've been pointing out, it may take and likely will take lots and lots of generations to, to solve any of these things. These are really complex problems. Yep. Um, but I, I, I agree with you. Our, I think our first step and one of the most important steps is to listen to each other. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I have conversations like this and I mean, we could go on for days, right. About all of the problems, all of the complexity out there and it can feel overwhelming. Like I just feel my own nervous mm -hmm. system going, Oh my mm -hmm. gosh, we're all screwed. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's, it's so hard. And so I always try to balance all of this with, it's a testament to the fact that we have all of these problems that we're all still here and, and able to even have the conversations. And for me, it's really why I come back to wisdom tradition in a lot of ways and why it's important to pay attention to our inner life and our spiritual life. And, you know, not in the ways that that start to become authoritarian <laughs> for this. I do think that it's important to uh, notice the things that give humanity hope. You know, it, it, we all know those stories and those movies and those like, you know, we're all buoyed up by the Victor Frankl's of the world, you know, that have, have gone through just horrific experiences and have come through with more wisdom that they can share with the rest of us. Right. Like there is something in us that really gravitates to people succeeding, to people being well, to people overcoming what is hard in this life, to people supporting one another, for people being willing to sacrifice for one another. And that I just don't want us to ever forget that that is such a core part of who humanity is. And the rest of it is traumas that we are enacting on one another. Um, for the vast majority of people, I believe, are not trying to inflict harm. They're, they're inflicting harm out of their own hurts, right? And we can only heal ourselves, but we can't do it alone. Mm. Excellent. Love it. Folks, I uh, hope you appreciate the conversation. If you do, you want to hear more things like this, the kind of stuff we cover here on the Almost Awakened podcast, go to almostawakened.org. Donate a few bucks, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month is a super big help to us. Uh, Jan, I want to thank you for spending the summer with us. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying the conversations that we're creating. And yeah, me too. Uh, 
Yeah. And I hope folks, if you, if you really like the conversation, hit the like button, subscribe to the channel. Uh, Almost Awakened is every Tuesday at 1 PM mountain time. And uh, we'll be back here next week. Uh, Jana, any closing comments, any closing thoughts? It sounds like you nailed it there at the end. Um, if not, we'll call it a day and we'll get out of here. Yep. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Have a great day, everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.